the book of Mark chapter 10 today, Mark chapter 10. And last week, it was chapter 9, we'll skip some of the chapter 9, and we'll go to Mark chapter 10, and we'll go down to verse 17, where there's a very familiar story, Mark chapter 10, and verse number 17. And would you stand with me as we read God's Word together, please, this morning. Mark 10, 17, follow with me in your scriptures, please. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And he said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And down in verse 26, and they were astonished out of measure, the disciples who were with him, saying among themselves, who then can be saved, Lord? And Jesus, looking upon them, said with men, it is impossible to inherit eternal life on their own, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And you may be seated. Last Sunday, I spoke to you on, this, uh, on the, a text from the book of Jonah. The text is in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9, and it's, salvation is of the Lord. In that message, I tried to emphasize as strong as I could that you can do nothing to earn your salvation. You are helpless and hopeless in terms of doing anything to earn your way to heaven. Jonah, down in the belly of that whale, is helpless and hopeless. There's zero that he can do to achieve life. And so his only hope is that God would come and miraculously and supernaturally deliver him, which the Lord did in his case. In the same way, you and I are absolutely helpless and hopeless when it comes to earning any kind of eternal life or salvation. And so we are absolutely dependent upon the Lord for our salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, years ago, there was a well-known and wonderful old evangelist. His name was B.R. Lakin, Dr. B.R. Lakin. He was one of the most uh, powerful preachers of the gospel I've ever heard. I knew him from my childhood. He was a childhood friend. He used to come and eat at our home in West Virginia when I was a little boy. And later when I became a pastor, I would have him come and preach. And Dr. Lakin preached, I think, 13 different occasions, revival meetings and so on in this church 
several of you sitting here today were saved hearing Dr. Lakin preach. Every time he came to town, we would put him up then at a Holiday Inn that was downtown. Now uh, it's down there on Palmetto Street across from First Baptist Church. It's been torn down since. He was there so many times, all the people knew him. He would come in, they'd act like it was an old long-lost uncle. Come on in, Brother Lakin. And he would sit there and tell jokes in the lobby and entertain the, the staff down there. And I'd go down there and talk to him. One day I was in his room sitting there. I'm a young preacher, if you can imagine, a long time ago. I know what you're thinking. So uh, the young preacher sitting there talking to the old experienced evangelist, and the old evangelist said, Bill, let me tell you something. Most preachers don't know the gospel. And I said, well, I thought that was sort of a qualification for being a preacher, (laughs) pastor. He said, I mean, they know it superficially, but he said, for example, let me tell you something, Bill. He said, do you know there are two ways to heaven? And I thought, come on, Doc. Just like you're thinking right now, what's the trick? Because you've preached a hundred years around here, there's only one way to heaven. He said, no, there's two ways to heaven. He turned me this passage. He said, that young man came to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I said, you're right. He said, well, what did Jesus say to him? I said, he told well, the, Jesus said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. He told him to keep the law. Did he say that in the passage? Let me see. Are you with me today? Did Jesus give him the gospel? Did he or not? You're not sure. He didn't give him the gospel. He told him to keep the law. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie and all that. Jesus didn't take him down the Romans road or share the faith plan or EE with him. He didn't tell him about the five spiritual laws. He told him to keep the law. Wait a minute. And I was so befuddled by that time that Dr. Lakin could see it. And he began to play. He was playing with me to get me to think through what I believed here. He said, Bill, he didn't share the gospel with him because he was so self-righteous and proud, and covetousness, covetous, that he had to break through that and show this young man his need for the gospel before he ever shared the gospel. And so Jesus didn't share the plan of salvation with this man. He took the law, and he showed him his need. Look at that young man there in verse number 17, if you will. The Bible says he was rich, so he's well off financially, materially. It says he was young, And so uh, we revel in our youth, particularly in America. He was a ruler, which meant that he had some sort of position, some sort of uh, prestige in his job. I don't know what he was, but he had position. And he was moral. He bragged about his morality, in fact, there in verse number 20. And there's so much to admire about this young man. He came the right way to Jesus. It said he kneeled down before the Lord. He came to the right person to talk about eternal life. Who better to talk to about eternal life than the Lord Jesus Christ? And notice he, he asked the right question. He was interested in the right subject. He didn't come and say, Lord, uh, who won the ball game last night? 
He wasn't talking about that. What was your golf score yesterday? How many fish did you catch? Or what's the sale going on at Walmart? No, it wasn't all that stuff. It was, Lord, what must I do to have eternal life? The most important question in life. What must I do to be saved? And, of course, he got the right answer here, even though it may not seem like it. I always looked at this passage with puzzlement as a young preacher. And then when Dr. Lakin opened my eyes, strange, isn't it? Jesus didn't talk about the cross. He didn't talk about the blood. He didn't talk about the gospel. He didn't talk about grace. He went backwards and talked to this young man about law, if you can believe that. And why didn't Jesus share the gospel? Because he wasn't ready to hear it. Had Jesus given him the gospel and told him about his coming atonement, the young man wouldn't have connected the dots on that. But let me tell you why Jesus did what he did. Now, are you listening? I prayed a while ago that you would listen in a special way because even church members, I really want you to listen to me about this. Why didn't Jesus share the gospel with a man who said, what must I do to have eternal life? I'll tell you why he didn't. Jesus used the law to expose the sin in this young man's heart. This young man was so moral, so good, so clean that he had become proud of his goodness. He was self-righteous as he could be. This young man was covetous. We read there in verse number 22, he was sad and walked away from the Lord because he had great possessions. In other words, he was a materialist who loved the things, the stuff that he had acquired in life more than he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have a proud man, a self-righteous man, a materialistic, covetous young man, and yet on the outside, he is as clean, he is resplendent in his cleanliness. He is as good a moral person as anybody sitting in this congregation right now. And yet, on the outside, he looks good, good, good. But on the inside, he has a problem. He's proud. Too proud to really be ready to cast himself upon the grace of God. Too self-righteous. He's depending on his goodness to get him to heaven. And Jesus exposed all that sin in his heart. You know, the most difficult people I've ever tried to reach for Christ are self-righteous people, good people. I can go places where the down and outs supposedly are. I can go down to the jail. Everybody down there knows that they're a sinner. You don't have to spend 30 minutes convincing them of their need. Now, they may not be ready, and they may not be sincere in, uh, in their profession, But I'll tell you one thing, they know they need the Lord or they wouldn't be there. But you know what? When you preach to a church full of Baptists, I say this with all love, but with great sincerity and concern. It's easy for people to sit here who are such good people compared to the community standards. And outwardly, they would never steal. They would never commit adultery. They would never do the things that the law outwardly condemns. And yet, inside, there's a heart of pride and self-righteousness and, and all kinds of other things going on. And they 
never have truly met Jesus as their, as their Savior. Turn with me very, very quickly, if you will, the book of Galatians chapter 3. I want to show you what Jesus did here, how he used the law, and how I think today that the modern church in our contemporary times no longer uses the law. In fact, we don't even want to use the word law anymore. When people do, they're accused of being a legalist. And yet, had Jesus been preaching in Florence in 2014 and would have done what he did right here, some old cold-hearted backslidden Christian somewhere would have said, you know what, Jesus is going legal. He's a legalist. It's exactly what they would have said. But let's read and see what Jesus was doing. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster or school teacher. And the purpose of the law never was for you to earn your way to heaven trying to keep it. The purpose of the law is to be our school teacher, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith after the law has come, after that faith then has come, after we're saved, we don't need the school teacher anymore. So the law is God's mirror. And Jesus held it up right in this young man's face and he said, look in the mirror. And the young man said, oh, I've kept all those things. And Jesus knew that he hadn't kept all those things. Jesus could read his heart. And Jesus said, you haven't kept all those things in his mind to himself. I can see that you're very covetous. I can see that you are wedded to the possessions that you have, that your richness has acquired. And I can see that you are very proud of your morality and very self-sufficient, self-righteous. So go sell everything you have. He tested him on one of the commandments. Which one was it? It was the 10th, thou shalt not covet. And when Jesus said, you just go sell everything that you have and then come and follow me. And the young man dropped his head. Oh, no. I'm not ready to do that. And he went away grieved. Jesus had put his finger right on the spot in that young man's heart that he never intended to turn over to Christ, that he didn't even know was there and that was sinful. There's an old story. We used to say, I don't know, there was a bunch of jokes that we had, and they went something like this. You want to hear the good news and the bad news? What do you want to hear first, the good news the bad news? Well, this morning, let me give you the bad news first. The bad news about every one of us is called law, L-A-W, the law, as you see up there. What is the law? When we pick up our Bible... You could actually divide the Bible into two parts. You could divide the Bible into law and grace, or you could divide it into what we call law and gospel, if you will. Now, what do we mean when we say law? Now, are you listening to me? I don't want to be Bill the theologian, but I got to be a little bit theological. And you know what? In this shallow, superficial world today, you need a little theology. So now listen up today. How many of you listening to me? Say amen. How many are not listening, not hearing a word I say, say amen. Okay. I think we got it. Now, you're listening. All right. What is the law? The law is God's moral laws, his expectations, his commands, 
the duties and the warnings that he gives us sprinkled throughout the Bible but concentrated in the Old Testament. The law is the standard that God uses to determine if something is a sin. In the Bible, it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The law represents the glory of God. Why do we call something a sin? Not because it's particularly harmful to other people, though that is part of it, but something is a sin by definition if it is outside of or breaks the law. The law is God's expectations for people. Sin is the transgression of the law, it says in the book of Romans. Much of the Old Testament was law. Do you remember Jesus referred to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets when he talked about the whole, the entire Old Testament? And he broke it into two, two parts, the law and the prophets. In Mark chapter 19, or 10 and 19 there, look in your Bible, in your text where your Bible's open, the law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are not all of the law, but the Ten Commandments are the very heart, the core, the center of the law of God. I could say it like this. Are you still listening to me? Law is everything in the Bible that reveals to me what God expects. He has moral expectations. God's law is what he expects of us. It's the revelation of his moral expectations. Now, here's what I want you to get. The law focuses on what man does for God. The law focuses on my duty. If I read something in the Bible that tells me my responsibility or an obligation that I have, I'm reading law. The law also reveals to me the glory of God, the character of God, that God is a holy God, that God is a just God. That's the law. Now, the interesting thing is we've had a a phenomenon that's happened within my ministry. From the early days of my ministry until today, there's been a big change. And across the land today, we hear more preaching against the law than we hear in favor of the law. And as I said, if a preacher talks about the law, somebody will probably call him a legalist. And today, the law is disparaged, even in conservative pulpits, sadly. Guilt is out in America, wherever and in whatever form. Guilt is taboo. And so today, much of our preaching in America, and I listen to a lot of it by other people, believe me, much of the preaching of America today is not about salvation at all. It's therapeutic. It's six ways to solve your problem. Much of the preaching today is advisory. Let me help you have a better marriage or something like that. Much of our preaching today is encouragement. Everybody's beaten down. Everybody has problems, so we need to encourage them. So we wouldn't dare ever mention bad news like Jesus did to this young man. Boy, this, I mean, Jesus just revealed to him his problem immediately. But though that's the trend today in America, let me show you what your Bible said. Turn again with me to the book of Romans chapter 7, because I want you to see that what I'm saying is based entirely and totally upon the Scripture. In the book of Romans chapter 7, 
and verse number 12. And this is a deep, man, if you can go through Romans 6 and 7 and really understand it clearly, you are, you, you, you're okay when you're, you, you're, you've reached a, a certain plateau in your Bible knowledge. And I don't have time to give you detail on it, but let me show you just a couple of phrases that'll make my point. In chapter 7 and verse number 12 of Romans, the Bible says that the law is holy. Well, it can't be too bad if it's holy then, can it? And the commandments are holy and just and good. Now, the next time you hear some weak, carnal Christian go off on the law, I want you to remember what the Bible says. The law is good. And the law is holy because it reflects the holy character of God. And go down in verse 16. I then, or if then, I do that which I would not, what I don't want to do, but I find myself falling into sin and doing it, I consent unto the law that it is good. It says it again. The law is good. It's holy. Now, look up here. Until the preacher preaches to you the bad news, the good news won't make a whole lot of impact on you. And we've got to be careful when we present the gospel to people that we don't just start out and say, listen, I want to tell you that God has a wonderful plan for your life and you can just be saved. And they've never even acknowledged that they have a need. The good news doesn't become really good in contrast until we give people the bad news. How would I know my need for Christ if it were not for the law? Do you know why Jesus quoted the law to this young man? Hear me well. Jesus quoted the law to him to show him his need for the gospel. And we don't know, but I hope that sometime a little later on, this young man said, oh, I know why he told me to go keep all the law. Because I've tried and tried and tried to keep the law, and I can't do it. And I heard that that one that I talked to that day died on the cross and paid for my sins. And now I so deeply feel my need of him. I want to take him as my Savior. You see, law is the diagnosis. The gospel is the medicine. I go in to see my doctor, and he says, Hello, Bill, how you doing here? Let me give you a prescription. Here. Wait, doc. What do you give me a prescription for? I, 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 don't, uh, I, I don't, you don't know what's wrong. I haven't seen you in a year. I don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going on with me. No, here's your diagnosis. If we're not careful, that's what we do. We meet somebody, and we think, Boy, this person needs the Lord. Here prescription. We start right down one of the gospel presentations, sharing the gospel. You know what? I've shared the gospel with people who later said they wanted to be saved uh, in the conversation even, and they're looking around the room. They're watching TV with one eye, and I'm trying to share the gospel. There's something wrong with that picture, isn't there? But when people understand what the law says, do you know what they say? Oh, I've tried and tried and tried to live the way God says to live in the law. And I've failed every step of the way. How many of y'all fail to live by the law? Anybody here? Amen? 
You know who's failed to live for the law in this room? You know what? From the outside, you probably think I look pretty good. And I don't mean, you know. (laughs) I've been preaching too long to say anything that stupid. I mean, from the outside, morally, you know, I pay my bills. I have to pay my bills in this town. If I didn't pay my bills, everybody know about it. So I pay my bills. And you know what? I, I haven't beaten my wife a whole lot. <laughs> and I don't cuss when I get mad. But does it ever come up here? And do I ever have pride? I just reveal some. Do I ever lust? Oh, preachers don't lust. Well, just ride with me for a week. Look at the signboards in town. Do I ever get angry when I should not get angry? And cross the line and descend? Sure, we all have those problems. You know what? As long as you live, those problems are there. My sin nature did not die because I got saved. Are you hearing me? My sin nature did not die. Now, the easiest thing to do is clean up the outside of the cup and live a moral life But inside, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees, the cleanest people who ever lived? He said, on the outside, you've cleaned up the cup, but inside, you're like a grave full of dead men's bones. And this young man was clean on the outside, like I'm clean on the outside pretty well, and you're clean on that. Most of you are pretty clean on the outside. But you know what? Jesus was looking beyond the outside. He was looking at the heart. And he said, young man, I'm going to show you your problem. And he began using the law to do it. The law is the announcement of what God, what man is to do for God. The gospel is the announcement of what God has already done for us. Do you see the difference? Jesus didn't tell him what he was going to do for him and for the whole world. He referred him to the law. The law, the gospel is the announcement of what God has done for me and for you. Now, one other thing I want you to get, and then I'll move on real quickly. When we say that Christ was our substitute, we mean usually that he was hanging on the cross for us. Let me tell you how else he was our substitute. He was our substitute in that he kept the law perfectly for us. And Jesus never sinned. And you know why that's important? Is because if I'm trusting him to take my place, then I'm not trying to keep the law to earn my own righteousness. I'm trusting in the only one who ever in history kept the law perfectly. He was my substitute keeping the law of God as well as in dying in my place and taking the punishment for having broken the law. Now, the good news, the good news is the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, there's a sense, in the broadest sense, that the entire New Testament is the gospel. The whole New Testament, 
could be called the good news about Jesus Christ. It's all about him. In a little narrower sense, though, we know that there are four books that began the New Testament, biographies, if you will, accounts of the life and the ministry and, and so on of the Lord Jesus Christ, accounts of his life and work. And each of them begins with the words, the gospel, the gospel according to Matthew, the good news according to Matthew, the good news according to Mark, the good news according to, and so on. So all of those four gospels are focused upon telling us the good news. But of course, there's one place that just gives us a bare bones outline, and this is the shorthand version. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And some of you are very familiar, could perhaps quote this, but I want you to see it with your own eyes from the words of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, and in verse 1, the apostle says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. And then let's go down to verse 3. He said, I delivered unto you first of all that which I received. How that? Now, here he's going to give us the gospel. I declare unto you the gospel. You will notice it has three points. It's a three-legged stool. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, meaning he fulfilled all the prophecies when he died. He was buried because they buried dead men. Three days in a tomb proved that he was dead and not in a swoon. And then verse 4, he arose again the third day, again according to the Scriptures, fulfilling all of those Old Testament prophecies. Now, what... I read this, and I used this illustration last week, but without apology, I repeat it to you because it's, it's had me excited ever since I read it. And what is the illustration? In, in a book I was reading, the author compared the gospel of Christ to a newscast. He said, all the gospel is is an announcement. So, I turn on my television to CNN or Fox News or something like that, and I watch the news. And the, there's a man there who's called an announcer. He's dressed in a nice suit or a woman in a nice dress. They're looking into the camera, and they're reading the news is what they call it, reading it probably off of a teleprompter that I can't see. And what is the news that they're telling me? It's the events that have occurred during the day or during the week. They tell me about what's happening in Iraq, what's happening down on the border of Texas and Mexico. They tell me about what's happening in New York. They tell me what's happening in government. They tell me what the weather's going to be. Actual facts that are being reported of events that have occurred. Now, the gospel is a newscast. I am the announcer today. And you were to join me in being announcers wherever you go, by the way, throughout the week. And what is it we are announcing? We are not announcing some mythological story. We are announcing certain historical, objective facts that occurred 2,000 years ago when God Almighty entered the human race 
through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, an actual flesh and blood man who was God in flesh. He came and lived in the nation of Israel for 33 years. At the end of his life, he crawled up on the cross and died for my sin and for your sin and the sins of the world. Three days later, after he lay in the grave to prove he was dead, he resurrected in resurrection power to prove he could defeat Satan and sin and death. And today, that's the good news. That's the good news. Jesus came and he loved me and he died for me. And I'm the announcer. And with all my heart, I believe that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It is the power of God to salvation, not what I can do, not my good life. I'm sorry to be so loud, but I'm going to tell you what, I get excited about that. I've been excited about it ever since I read that story. You may need to get a little more saved to get a little excited yourself. An historical objective fact based on evidence, based on witnesses, not something we pulled out of the air because we wanted to believe it and we were desperate people. No. Events that occurred and the Bible reported on them and gave us the evidence for it. And the Bible says when we believe that, we're saved. An announcement of the good news of what God has done for man, the gospel. How much do I need to know to be saved, preacher? Well, let me tell you, that's the wrong question. How much do I need to know to be saved? Wrong question, but I've had people ask me that. What's the minimum, the irreducible minimums of what I must believe? Wrong question, because listen to me, don't miss it. It's not how much you know that saves you. It's who you know and who you are trusting in this morning. That's what saves you. James Fraser was a famous missionary to China. He wrote a book called, there's a book about his life called Mountain Rain. Been one of the most influential books in my life. James Fraser was trained to be a concert pianist. Played, in fact, a couple of concerts with the uh, London Symphony. So he was a sophisticated, urbane, educated young man. He went to school and became a, a, a mechanical engineer. And when he was 21 or two years old, God called him to China. And in those days, China was remote. And it was pagan darkness personified. James Fraser not only went to China, he trekked all the way across it and went down into the southeastern corner or southwestern corner. And James Fraser lived in some of the most remote mountains in the world, 10, 12, 14,000 feet high down on the Burmese border. And he was single. He lived there by himself. He writes of the loneliness, the demonic oppression, the darkness spiritually around him. He was faithful to God's word, and he began to preach. He went to the Lizu people, L-I, 
S-U, Lizu. When James Taylor died as a relatively young man of only 53 years old, they said there were at least 180,000 converts of James, Taylor, uh, James Fraser that were worshiping every Sunday in those Lizu churches. In fact, the Lizu tribe, missiologists have said, was one of the most evangelized people groups in all of history. It was like everybody had gotten saved in this region of several thousand square miles here. And Fraser writes in Mountain Rain, there are four things in my ministry I have observed in preaching to the Lizu that are essential. One, the crucifixion of Christ. I guess he's writing to preachers advising us. Because James, James Fraser said, you don't need to go into the theological implications every time. Just tell people that Jesus died a horrible, horrible, bloody, violent death where he paid for our sins and took our place. And then he said, never in the New Testament is the gospel announced without the resurrection also being mentioned. Always tell people that Christ conquered death. It's a vital part of the gospel. And then Fraser said, and then give an exhortation to repent of sin. And then he emphasized something that I like the way he said it. Don't ask people to repent of all the sins. Ask them to repent of the sin. And he had the in capital letters. What is the sin above all other sins that Fraser was saying people need to repent of? Exhort them to repent of the sin. What's the sin? It's the sin of unbelief. The sin of rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he said, always tell them that God has made a promise. God Almighty has made a sacred promise that all who believe in Jesus Christ in a saving way, that trust in Him, really depend upon Him, rely on Him, rest in Him, who cease to do anything at all to earn their salvation but cast themselves upon the Lord with their sins. He said, tell them that God has promised salvation to everyone who believes in that sense. You see, if we present the gospel today, and Sunday school teachers especially listen to me, if we present the gospel in a way that turns a person's attention to what they must do rather than what Christ has done, we bring confusion to them. I've been analyzing my own preaching and sometimes inadvertently in the heat of being up here preaching and thinking and concentrating, I'll use a poor choice of words as I did a while ago. And I'll go home after the message and I'll worry about it. Did I somehow imply that people must do something of their own accord to be saved rather than just simply trust Christ? I was witnessing to a man, and I could sense he kept saying he was a Christian as I talked to him, but I could sense he really didn't understand what we were talking about. We just weren't connecting. 
And he kept saying to me words like this. I've already done that, preacher. I did that. I did that. Wait a minute. Somehow I might have confused him. It's not what he did. It's what Jesus did. And does he really believe that with all of his heart? He kept talking about, I raised my hand. I went down the aisle. I was baptized. I joined the church. I tried to live a good life. It's not what he's doing. It's what Christ did for all of us 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross. And if I believe that and turn my mind to that away from my sins, then the Lord has promised me salvation. One message is subjective and puts the emphasis on what people are trying to do. The other message is objective and it emphasizes what God has, has done for us. Do you remember one night Paul and Silas were locked up in a jail? They'd been beaten severely. Blood was running down their backs. And God intervened and shook that little jail in an earthquake in Acts chapter 16. And the prisoners were all escaping. And in those days, in the Roman government, in the Roman law, under the Roman law, if a jailer or a soldier let a prisoner escape, they paid with their own life. And on this day, the prisoners were walking out. The jailer was terrified, knowing at what he would face. And he comes, and the jailer, who has all the authority, falls down in front of Paul, who's the prisoner. And the jailer says, Paul, what must I do to be saved? Do you know what Paul said? One word. He didn't say, raise your hand, come down the aisle, join the church get baptized. All those are good things if you properly understand them. But Paul only used one phrase with him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus. Rely on Jesus. Only. Not on Jesus plus something, but on Jesus and him only. Boy, that's the best news I could tell you folks this morning. Talk about good news. There's forgiveness and there's reconciliation there's adoption into his family, as we've talked about. There is blessing to be his child. There is so much good that Jesus Christ accomplished for us when he came to the cross, if you'll just believe. Now listen to me carefully, and I conclude. If you believe that with all your heart, that Jesus came and died for you, now, when I say believe, again, let me define that. I don't mean you just believe that intellectually like you believe that Abraham Lincoln was president or something like that. But I mean if you're actually depending on Jesus Christ. We're going to walk out the door in a minute, and you're going to go out to the parking lot, unlock your car and get in it and crank it up and drive it home. That's what you're depending on, isn't it? You could go out there and the car would be gone. Somebody could have stolen it. And then you would say, oh, I depended on my car to get to work to go home today. I'm talking about believing in Jesus in that way. You're depending on Jesus. Not Jesus plus confirmation, not Jesus plus baptism, not Jesus plus being a good moral person, not Jesus plus membership in the Baptist temple. No, you're depending solely, only, completely, fully, totally 
on Jesus Christ to come and do a new work in your life. And that's what you're counting on for your salvation. If you believe the gospel in the Bible sense, you are a Christian. In a moment, I'm going to have you stand and I'm going to say, you know, if you want to come forward, you can come forward. But let me make it clear. You can be saved sitting right in that seat. I know people who've been saved praying by their bed at home just in desperation cast themselves upon Jesus and they were saved right there alone in their bed. I know people that have been saved in almost every kind of situation in life outside of a church. This is just an opportunity for me to tell you to announce the good news. And after having announced it, I challenge you, is that what you're trusting in? Are you trusting in Jesus plus living a good life like this good, like this young man? I've preached on this two Sundays in a row. I probably won't again for a while because I've been very burdened and I've been very concerned. I don't want anybody here to pass into eternity and say, I sat under Bill Monroe's preaching for years, and you know what? I was confused. That, that terrorizes me that that could happen. Coming to the front don't save you. Joining the church doesn't save you. But come to Jesus. And if you need help or you have questions or you want somebody to pray with you, I want you to come. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.